Father, we would uh, just pray for your wisdom, insight, the stick-to-itiveness of the information that you give to us. We would ask, Lord, that it would just be part of us, that there would be instant recall when necessary and implementation. We know that there are those who are only hearers of the word and not doers. But, Father, help us all to be doers. And we fail in so many ways. And your grace is so good to us. And your mercy is never ending. But help us, Lord, to strive for that life, that walk that you require of us. And especially in the relationship of husband and wife. And again, Father, we would pray that you would instill this information in us so that even if those of us here who are not married run into a couple that is having difficulty, they can also bring wise counsel from your word. We thank you for the information. We thank you for your care over us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this will be the last in the six-part series of the Marriage Reset and Reinforcement. We started with relationship and the communication. We went on to riches or the money, and we're going to end today with respect. I started it last week, and the whole idea of Getting along with one another starts with understanding. You have to understand who it is you're dealing with inside the marital relationship. If you don't, you may be trying to apply a fix that doesn't work whatsoever. Like the way men relate to each other is different than the way a man relates to a woman or a woman to another woman. We do not relate the same. And I brought those things to you, those differences several out of the 50 last week. But this love and respect is probably one of the most difficult because a husband is called to love his wife and a wife is called to respect or submit to her husband. And if those two things aren't happening, then the blueprint for marriage is not being fulfilled. And marriage will always be difficult. It is never not going to be difficult. But this idea of marriage, God has given us the institution of marriage. It was the first institution that was ever created. It was installed right after creation in the book of Genesis. And so those who get married, we want to make sure that everyone is prepared, knowing that as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28 says, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And Paul said, He wanted to spare people that and just to have them remain single. Of course, we know that that is not going to happen based on the attraction between men and women. But at the same time, it can be very difficult. It can also be the the most rewarding adventure anybody can undertake if it's done correctly. But why does it seem that it is so difficult for the wife to submit to the husband and for the husband to love the wife. I mean, these are simple words. If you say something like, well, woman, you just need to submit to your husband. Those are like fighting words for a, was- a woman. The woman, will, she first believes, like, what are you talking about I need to submit to him? I am woman, hear me roar. I can do what I want. I can live the way I want. I love my husband, but the submission thing... Aren't we co-equal, co-heirs in Christ? Yes, we are. But this idea of submitting, or the husband loving the wife, and what does that mean to love the wife? You know, right up front, it means die. It can mean that literally, or it can mean that metaphorically or symbolically. And so the husband, he has to sacrifice everything that he has for the sake of his wife. If he is doing that, and he has to start, the man is supposed to be the leader in the marriage relationship. He has to start by dying, and then the woman will easily, or more easily, submit to the man. This is all contingent on both of the partners being good disciples. If we're not good disciples, no matter what is done, as far as our lives are concerned, we will never reach the pinnacle of having a happy marriage. And so these things that we need to learn, bringing understanding, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And I'm going to answer this question, why does it seem so difficult for the wife to submit to the husband and for the husband to submit to the wife? 
I'd like you to open up your Bibles. We're going to go through Genesis chapter 3, at least down to verse 19. And we're going to see where this all began. We're going to gain this understanding and really kind of wrap our heads around why it's such a difficult task. Now, when Adam and Eve were first created, they were not given to arguments. They were perfect. Everything was perfect for them. They were perfect people. They had perfect bodies. They had perfect intellect. They had a perfect love for one another. Everything was perfect. But in Genesis, we see how that fell by the wayside. Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 1, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid him, or they hid, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So this is the first and the primary indication why It's so difficult for the husbands and wives just to get along, for the husbands to love their wives and for the wives to submit to the husbands. Now, these phrases in here, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. You know, I've looked at this a couple of different ways. Uh, The word that is used here for your desire will be for your husband, it's pronounced teshukah or tesukah is the word that is in the Hebrew. And this word, the meaning of this root word in the original sense is a sense of stretching out after, like reaching type of a thing. And a desire or a longing or a craving. It goes on with subsets in that. And one is a desire of a man for a woman. A desire of a woman for a man. And a desire of a beast to devour. So those are the choices we have to interpret this particular word. But to interpret the word, context is always relevant, necessary, it's important that you have the proper context. For instance, this word is used another time in Scripture, but not coupled with the other word, which is, he will rule over you. There's only one place where those two are used together as a couplet. But where it is used singularly is in the Song of Solomon, and it's in chapter 7, verse 10. It says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. Now, if you're going to interpret that, would you say, well, it's a desire like reaching out to devour a beast? Well, no, that's... Not what it is in the context of 
the entire book of the Song of Solomon. I mean, it's a sappy love song is what it is. It's just like, I love you so much. Your eyes are sparkling. Your legs are marble pillars. And you know how he describes her. It just goes on and on. So it's the desire of a man for a woman and a woman for a man. And that's how you would interpret it. But to interpret this particular phrase, there's only one other place in Scripture where it's used like this. And that is in Genesis chapter 4. And it begins in verse 6. And so there is this quote-unquote a law of first mention when it comes to interpretation. When a word is used for the very first time in Scripture, that is usually a good indication of what it means throughout the rest of Scripture. And so you want to go back for first mention. We have the the first mention in chapter 3 that is there. But the second mention of this particular word inside the context is in Genesis chapter 4 with the, he will rule over you. And it deals with Cain. It says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Remember, he brought this offering to God. There was Cain and Abel. And Abel brought a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. But Cain brought a sacrifice that was unacceptable to God. He wasn't doing what he was told to do. He goes on to say, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. That master it, the word that is used there in the Hebrew, is the same for the previous chapter, chapter 3, where it says, he will rule over you. So what he is telling Cain here is, sin desires to devour you like a beast, but you must rule over it. You must master it. You must conquer it. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you read that context there, it means her desire will be for her husband. She desires to devour him like a beast. It is not a desire that a woman has for her husband as far as a familial relationship is concerned or a husband and wife, a marital relationship is concerned. It is one where the woman, because of the fall, wants to grab a man and control him. That is the sin that came with the fall. All women have this. There is not a single woman that doesn't have this. And she is sly in trying to exert this control. She knows that she is not as strong as the man. Therefore, she must be cunning. Why do you think that the women, they are the seductresses in Scripture or even in life? They use perfumes and sweet talk and caressing and say, come, you know, if you read... Proverbs, if you go through chapter 6, 7, and 8, you see that this woman, the seductress, stay away from her because it is a big temptation. And the woman inside the marital relationship, she'll use whatever tool she has in her tool bag, so to speak, to get the husband to do what she wants him to do. And I went through a list of things of how the woman does this. Remember several weeks ago? I said it'll start out sometimes with a request, and if the request doesn't come, it's whining. And if it's not whining, it's sadness. And if it's not sadness, it's anger. And so she goes through all of these different steps to try to get what she wants. And then at the end, it's just, well, fine, just go do it. You know, and she ends up maybe getting angry or disappointed or crying or all of those at one time. We don't know how it exactly it works. But those are the tools she uses. Now, I'm not just making this up. This is what Scripture says. And so we need to be aware of it. But part of the fall as well is the man will have dominion over. He will exercise that dominion over. And he, if necessary, will crush the woman to get her to submit. That's the fall. The woman wants to capture the husband and use him for her own purposes. And the husband will say, no, and I'm stronger and will put her down. That's the fall. Many of us still operate under the fall. We have been released from that where we don't have to. If we let the flesh succeed, then we fail at it. And the husband becomes domineering and overbearing and ruthless and harsh if you're operating according to the flesh and the fall. And the woman, if she is operating according to the flesh and the fall, 
will do likewise. Cunningness, words she says, punishments she's delivering to him just to get him to conform to what she wants. We both seek to control each other. That's what the fall brought. Our job, our task, is to operate outside of that fall. This is why it is so difficult for husbands and wives not to argue. I've never met a a couple that has never had an argument. And if they haven't, they will. It is down the road, they will. And, you know, like uh, Patty and I, we were married for, I don't know, years before we had an argument. And then when it came, I exerted control. And she tried, you know, she tried to meander her way through the the uh, problem, whatever it was. I forget what it was, but I just remember so distinctly. We we never argued, and we told that to our premarital counselor, Glenn Hirshiki was his name. He, he asked us, "So, what have you guys argued about?" Uh, nothing. We didn't argue about anything for a whole year. We courted, dated. You know, we were married in a year from when we met, and we didn't argue. And then, you know, we had our first one. And so everybody will have an argument that is married and we revert to what our flesh understands. Our flesh, as men, understands force, domineering, strength. Women, I've already explained what they use. So going on with this, understanding that we have this in common, you know, this this fight, there still was a curse delivered to Adam. And he says this in verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil, you will eat of it. The woman has pain in childbearing. And I believe that's not just the physical birth. I believe that is all through life. The children will cause us pain to one degree or another. Normally, most kids grow out of that. They're causing the pain. Sometimes the kids never grow out of that. He goes on to say, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. So all the cactus that's out there, it's because the man ate of the fruit. All the thistles, the thorns, all those little spiny things that are out there, it's because of the fall. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken from the dust or for the dust, and you are, and to the dust you will return. So that's the curse that the man has. The man is going to sweat for the rest of his life. And the women will turn to the man nowadays and say, oh, you're so sweaty. Well, it's part of the curse, babe. You know, it's what I got to do. And the woman has the childbirthing part, and, you know, she goes through the transition and all of that, and she's upset, and there's pain. And But there's pain that's almost perpetual, especially as the child is growing up. It just happens. We are both designated for pain and suffering as a result of the fall. It is the curse. Our job is to rise above that curse and not make that our default setting. You guys know what a default setting is on a computer, right? It's not operating right. And it says, would you like to restore your default settings? And you go and you click that to the default settings, and that's what we run to. We run to our default setting of the fall whenever... There is an argument or a problem. So the curse that brought the serpent, uh, the curse of crawling on his belly, the woman pain in childbearing, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, all of that. Uh, she wants to rule over her husband and have dominion over him. And the man, painful toil, thorn and thistle, sweating, making the ground produce fruit, and he returns to dust from which he came. And so this answers that question. Why does it seem so difficult for the wife to submit to the husband and for the husband to love his wife? It is because both men and women are under the curse. Now with that in mind, God sets up a couple of verses here, and there are more that we can expand on, but specifically Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll just read it in verse 22, it is a directive here. It is a command. It's delivered in the imperative mood, which means you're supposed to do it. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church of his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in almost everything. 
<laughs> it's that one compound word in there that presents a problem. It's not almost everything. There's not a modifier on the compound word. It's everything. Now, if you look this up in the Greek, it means everything. It doesn't mean some things. It means everything. You mean like everything. Everything. Wait a second. What would you not submit to Christ to? If Christ asked you to submit to him in something, what would you say? No, I don't think so. Not today. As a believer, as a disciple... We're supposed to submit to all of that. Anything that he says, we're supposed to say, okay, I don't want to, but I'm going to submit to that. Well, the woman has the task of submitting to her husband. And it's a result of the curse. God, he put this like uh, fail safe in there. Look, you guys are under this curse, but this is how to kind of get around it. This is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to submit women to your husbands when you marry them. Whatever they say to do, you need to do it. And the woman might object and say, well, what if he's mean? He's going to be mean. I, I promise you he's going to be mean. That's why later on, as we'll read, men are exhorted not to be harsh with their wives. I don't know of any man that has at some point not been harsh with his wife, that has not snapped back at her and maybe glared at her like, no, we're not, and whatever, fill in the blank. He's, he's just saying, I'm not going to do this, and he ends up being harsh to her. And so the woman's job is to lovingly submit. Now, if she feels like she has a boot on her neck, you're going to have a miserable marriage. That shouldn't be the way it should be handled. Now, even in the midst of this, if she is aware, if she's being led and guided by the Holy Spirit, she will recognize when she's trying to lovingly submit to her husband but get exactly what she wants and trying to manipulate everything into that corner or into that channel. Like if I submit to him here, then I can get this from him and things will work out just fine. And she will, remember, she deals with both sides of her brain at the same time. The man has a one-track mind. She is thinking, how can I do this over here while doing this over here? And it is just spaghetti going back and forth how she's going to devise this scheme to get what she wants and that's just part of the sin nature and the husband one track mind remember if you've ever heard somebody like comedians talk about the men uh, has a woman ever talked to a man and said or to her husband said what are you thinking about you know what the answer is guys right nothing and the woman says no you're thinking about something and you go no Nothing. It, it's it's like on autopilot, you know. It's just um, and and sometimes that things aren't clicking. Now, not all the time. He is thinking about some things, and if he's got a thought that he's grabbed a hold of, and he's he's exploring it, and he's going in depth with it, and you say something to him, he's going to go, huh? What? He's not going to multitask. He has to stop that thought. And if he feels like he's being interrupted, he might be harsh. And so the woman has to gently turn to him and ask the question at the right time. She asks the question at the right time, things are good. But she has to remember not to do things out of impure motives. Now, I'm going to get to the man, too. I'm, I'm just giving instruction to the women on this. This is how that sin nature just creeps up. Just as sin desires to have us, it desires to devour us. The woman, she wants to devour her husband, so to speak, and get him to do her bidding. And so she should submit to her husband in everything. There is not a single area that is outside of this. And this is, again, a command. In Ephesians 5.33, however, each one of you must love his wife, as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. So the wife has to submit and respect the husband, and the husband has to love his wife. And even though there are two words for the woman, things that she has to do, the man's word, love, is much greater in scope. He has to sacrifice himself. He has to go to the cross. He has to not be harsh. He has to 
gently instruct. He has to understand that she is the weaker vessel, that she cannot do as much as he is capable of doing because of his broad shoulders and his strength and his determination and all of that. And so we are completely different as far as our abilities are concerned, as I pointed out last week. So this love... If the man needs to die for his wife, in other words, and I'm speaking hypothetically here, if somebody had a gun, the husband would naturally stand in front of the wife. If he was threatening the couple or threatening the wife, he would, quote-unquote, take the bullet for her. That's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to lay down his life. He's supposed to stand in the way of danger. He's supposed to be the one who is the protector. He's supposed to be the one who is the uplifter. He is the one that's supposed to supply everything that she needs. Her happiness is contingent and dependent on him loving her as Christ loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? He gave up everything for her. Everything that Christ had on this earth, he did not consider any of it worthy for that which the church was worth. He would not trade it. And so that's our job as husbands, is to simply die. Uh, Colossians chapter 3.18, it repeats it here. It says, wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So I'd like to digress just for a moment. This other idea of respect. Sometimes it's difficult to respect those who are harsh. And men, there are times men can just be stupid. You know, and, and women, there are times where women can be foolish. A, a woman, it, scripture says a woman can tear down her own house by the words that she speaks. And it is better to live on a corner of a rooftop than in a house with a brawling or fighting woman. I could see that. You know, if, if there's a woman that is just contentious and combative and everything, like, I'm out of here. The guy's going to say, I'm out of here. I'm done with this. And so the woman has to be careful. You know, this, this quiet submission that the scripture talks about, it is a garland for the woman in her life. It is a benefit it is a moniker. It is something that can be used as a form of praise. If people see that, they will bring her praise. But for the men and the way men operate, for the woman who is just the opposite, it's almost as if the woman is a curse. And so the woman, more often than not, needs to limit her words to her husband. Just It's like when we go to God... God says, don't let your words just ramble on and on like the pagans do. Choose your word carefully before you go to God and you start praying. Don't just ramble. And the same thing would apply in the husband and wife relationship. We are the bride of Christ, and so we're not supposed to go to Christ and just ramble on. Although God wants to hear everything that's in our heart. We just want to be careful what we say when we say it. And it just provides wisdom. And that goes for all of life. That goes for business, the relationships, the children, the parents, all of that. We choose our words carefully. And so the wives need to do that. And they need to respect their husbands. If a wife doesn't respect her husband, it's never going to work. And I will tell you, there's probably been times where I should not have been respected. But that doesn't get my wife off the hook. Just like it doesn't get me off the hook if she's not respecting me for some reason, that I would not still die for her. It it doesn't matter. I said last week that marriage is a one-way street. Once you get into it, you cannot be diverted. Yeah, you walk side by side, but if one falls back, you still walk that path that God tells us, whether it's the husband or the wife that is walking that path. No matter what is given to you in return, once you say, I do... You lock yourself together. And God says, this is how you're to walk together. And you help each other out through that process. So there is submission, there is respect, and there is love in everything. Now, the greatest act of love, of course, is John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that doesn't apply just to the man Although primarily in our context, that is what it is meaning. It's for us in general, for everybody who is out there. So what do we do with this? How how do we cope with this, practically speaking? 
we need to, as both husbands and wives, cultivate gratitude and a spirit of thankfulness. If we are always grateful for anything that we receive. And women might say, well, I don't receive much of anything from my husband. There still needs to be some gratitude. You you guys are still together. You're still uh, doing what the Lord wants you to do. That's good. But if there's ingratitude, there's going to be disharmony and disunity. And if you have those things combined, there is not going to be a happy, fulfilling marriage. And also the spirit of thankfulness, just walking around giving thanks to God for the life that he has given you. And by the way, when, if we want to complain, remember the book of Acts, I believe it's in chapter 17. It says that we were 16 or 17. We were born for a particular time, a particular place to meet the particular people, to have the particular children that we have been blessed with. God gave those to us as men and women. And we can say, God, you did not give me that which is good. Chances are he gave us exactly what, and I believe it to be true, he gave us exactly what we needed to transform us into who we need to be. And if we allow God to do that, whether it's a breaking that has to take place, and in ministry, Chuck Smith always said, in order for God to use a man in ministry, he has to break him. Well, the same thing applies to anybody that's a believer. We have to be broken at some particular point, and everything that we have in the relationship is meant to do that. So we cultivate gratitude and a spirit of thankfulness. But the world, and you'll easily recognize this, the world doesn't do this and it doesn't like this. It doesn't like the wife submitting to the husband or the husband dying and loving the wife. Uh, What kind of scandal is out there now, seems to be in Hollywood and in sports and in media, you guys know that there's a scandal out there, right? Can you name Weinstein, ring a bell? And now it's going, the latest one that I heard, that a woman was traumatized because the president had asked her for her number when she was single and didn't know what to do. And because of that, he needs to resign. And I'm thinking to myself, what? What has happened to us? You know, there is this friendly banter that goes back between men and women when the men pursue the women, right? It it just happens. It's called flirting. It takes place. And if people are single, the guy should, if he's interested, ask for a phone number and not just show up at her house, right? Just ask. I mean, that's part of dating and courtship and all of that that's just natural but the world's saying no you can't do any of that or one another one that i heard was people were standing for a picture and someone placed their hand in the small of a woman's back and that just sent the woman when we take pictures normally do you usually put your arm around the person you're next to or you stand real close to them yeah like if it's two men, <laughs> you grab each other, you know? And if it's women, the women, they get real close, you know, and they bend one knee and whatever they do, and, and, and it's just lovey-dovey and all of that. You know, we, we get in, we're, we're like family, and it's okay. Even total strangers, you know, when we go to these foreign countries, you take a picture, you stay. hey, you know, and you smile. You do something like that. But the world, the way that it is going, especially with these harassment claims and the new feminism which is out there, the feminism is falling right in line with the default setting. The default setting for women is they want to capture and devour a beast which is the man. And everything about the man is unacceptable. Like if, if you stood out there in the media, if you went on a news program and you said, I believe men need to be strong, manly, masculine, muscular, and ready to fight. The feminists would say, oh, that is so chauvinistic. You know, they would say that you need to be more like a woman. You need to be more caring and don't touch and do exactly what I say. And that's what they want to do with the men. They, they want to take these men. The latest was they're bringing puppies to a college campus for men and women to hug and play with. 
along with the Play-Doh and the pudding so that they'll feel fine, so they won't be traumatized. What are we raising in our society? This is just getting stupidly nuts. I, I can't express it any other way. I'm making up words to get the information across. Let men be men and let women be women in, in the non-falling default mode is what I'm talking about. Let the women be feminine. Let the men be masculine. That's how God created us. But the world says, no, the men need to be feminized and the women need to be masculinized, if that's a word. They, they need to be more masculine and tough and rough and hard to bluff and used to hardships, that type of thing. And the men just need to tone it down a little bit. It's called, quote-unquote, toxic masculinity. If you are a man, you are toxic to the society in general. And I just want to encourage you, every time you hear about that or are encouraged to do that, just kindly resist Gently. You don't have to, as a man, slam the table and walk out. I'm still going to be a man. You don't have to do anything like that. Just say, ha! And walk away. You know, if that's all you have to do. And women, like I said, be feminine. Be women that God created you to be. And if we are inside the marital relationship, and by the way, just as a parenthetical thought, it doesn't mean the men are better than the women. It doesn't mean the women are better than the men. In some things, women are going to be much better than men. One case that I've talked about before is in nurturing. Men are terrible nurturers. They just don't do it. They, he's crying. How do I fix it? I change him. I feed him. What else do you want? You know? And the woman is just, oh, it, it just needs to be held and cuddled and, you know, whatever. Oh, whatever. You know, and the guy, you know, he's just tired of doing that. And, well, and men can be more, um, how should I say, nurturing. But naturally speaking, the women are built for it. The men are not. And so we want to make sure that we encourage those things that God dictates to us. Today's feminine, or feminism seeks to dominate males through the standing in society, family, and business in all of these areas of life, through the drafting of laws, through the intimidation, through shame, through marches, through protests, through coercion, all of these things. And, you know, as believers, I can say we can resist it gently. We just don't have to buy into the program. And so God's economy, men are not different than women as far as their worth, their inherent value, it's repeated twice in Scripture. Galatians 3.28, Neither is there Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And we are all co-heirs. We have just been given different tasks. So both men and women need to be rolled in training to be godly. This is an encouragement from Scripture. In order to be a good husband and wife, as I've just previously said, we have to be a good disciple. If you're a good disciple... The rest of it, a good father, a good mother, a good brother, a good sister, a good friend, all of those things will naturally flow. In First Timothy, its instruction is being delivered to those who would be elders and deacons. And it says the wives are to be women worthy of respect. If you ask yourself the question, okay, so the leader's wives are to be women worthy of respect. Does that mean just the person who comes to church, that just serves in church, is not to be a woman worthy of respect? <laughs> you don't have to respect her. She's not a leader. That's nuts. You know, everybody needs to respect women, and women need to cultivate this idea of being worthy of respect, that they handle themselves properly, that they're not malicious talkers, but they're temperate, and they're trustworthy in everything. You can trust them. That's the spiritual training that the women need to go through. Also in 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 through eight, it says specifically there, and of course this is for Timothy and the leaders in the church, train yourself to be godly. Would you say that doesn't apply to everybody else in the church? No, it applies to everybody in the church. We're to train ourselves to be godly. It says for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both this present life and the life to come. So if we train ourselves to be godly, we are trained for the next life as well as this life. Everything else we do, it's going to be burnt up. It is not going to have any value for the kingdom to come. So what to 
what to cultivate and what to avoid. This is some more stuff here that Scripture just says. It, it is holy writ. It says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and sound in the faith, in love, and in endurance. And likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in a way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. See, this is our motivation. People will speak evil of us as disciples, as Christians, as believers, if we don't have good marriages. They will say, well, God wasn't able to keep them together. You know, what's the deal? Well, did they do it right? Did they not do it right? Were they following the instruction? But whatever it is, we need to be submissive to God so that the world won't look at us and say, look at you guys. You claim to be believers in Christ and the church and holy matrimony and all of that, and you just treat it like it's another institution that can be done away with. And so we want to make sure that we are not heaping guilt on those inside the church that go through difficulty, but we encourage each other. And all the more as we see the day approaching that Jesus Christ is coming back and that he wants us to be submissive, respectful, and loving to each other as husband and wife. In Proverbs 31, woman, we all know that passage. I, I've heard women say at times when they go to women's retreats in Proverbs 31, the woman's talked about there, that who can live like that? That woman is like perfect. And that's the standard that God sets out there. And women buck against that. They say, I can't possibly do that. By ourselves, we can't. But in Christ, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we can. First Peter chapter 3 also gives some additional instruction. It says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity, the reverence of their lives, your beauty should not come from the outward adornment, such as braided hair, wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And let me tell you, it's of great worth in a man's sight as well. You know, loud women, ah, they're fun. <laughs> but a quiet woman, that's the woman that is desires, desirous of a man. A man desires that type of woman. And so God knew how to build us and that he's given us the instruction and reminding us here how we're supposed to be. It says that they were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called her, him, her master. You are daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. And so it, it, it just goes on and it delivers some exhortation there in First Peter chapter 3. But drawing this to a close here, <clears throat> you know, these men that uh, love these women and they pursue them and they want to marry them and they want these women to have their children. You know, there are 39% of the men will say, I love you within the first month of seeing someone. 39% of men, almost 40% of men. Compared to, do you think women say it more often or less often? Less often. The woman has to be wooed. Within the first month, she will not say, only 23% of women will say, I love you in the first month. And so that's a task for men. That, that's a task like, okay, how can I get her to say that? Do you remember if you were married... When was the first time you said, I love you? That was like, that's a benchmark. You know, when you say, I love you. And then the spouse, future spouse, or however it was working out, says, wow, I love you too. You know, and it's, it's like, oh, okay, this is the next step. But then you get married, what's for dinner? What happened to the, I love you? And, you know, you... Sometimes you say it every day, sometimes you don't say it every day, but it needs to be said, right? This idea of a couple, you know, the wife needs to feel like she loved, she's loved, not just know that she's loved. And you've heard me say that several times. And that's the task of the man. If he loves his wife, he will make her feel like she's loved. And how do you do that? You spend money on her. I mean, I just want to be blunt here. If you're not spending money on your wife, do you think she's going to be happy? Well, for the most part, what if you don't have money? Go get some. 
That's, that's what scripture says. Go get a job and get some money and take her on a date. Well, I, I can't go to Outback at 60, 70, 80 bucks, you know, if I go there. Fine. Go to In-N-Out Burger for six bucks. You can get a nice cheeseburger, you know, and you can have a drink with that and French fries and you can sit face to face or side by side and you can communicate. You got a date. You got to go out. If you're not going out and doing something, well, I don't, you know, we just don't like to do that. Well, find something to do. Ride bikes, you know, go down to the ocean, something you got to date. And then for the rest of your lives, you got to improve yourself physically, even though your body is declining. Patty says of me, you've slipped, you know. The, the shoulders used to be broad, and now it's just, whoa, it's just like slipped. And, you know, it happens. The, the slipping happens. But I want to make sure it doesn't slip to the point where, oh, something's wrong here. We, we want to make sure that we watch ourselves, that we take care of ourselves, that we shower and get haircuts and all of that, and you're not Mr. Stinky Man or anything. You, you just want to make sure you take care of yourself. And every once in a while, you have to get away. You have to go somewhere. I mean, like a day or two or a week. You have to plan something and do it on a budget if you have to, but plan. And then most of all, you've got to have the romance. Now, sometimes the romance wanes. It depends on the budget and all of that. But certainly, I love you applies and you know flowers every once in a while or whatever if you give them too often man if you give them too often you, she won't like it no she will like it but it'll be just become mundane and routine and you have to keep things fresh and there have to be surprises there you know there's this couple and i'm going to close with this there's this couple they loved each other dearly and this is their story it says, and this is written by a, I believe it's a granddaughter. It says, my grandparents were married for over half a century and played their own special game from time to time since they had met each other. The goal of their game was to write the word Shmiley in a surprise place for the other to find. They took turns leaving Shmiley around the house, and as soon as one of them discovered it, it was their turn to hide it once more. They dragged Shmiley with their fingers through the sugar and flour containers to await whoever was prepared, who had prepared the next meal. They smeared it in the dew on the windows overlooking the patio where my grandma always fed us warm homemade pudding with blue food coloring. Smiley was written in the steam left on the mirror after the hot shower where it would reappear bath after bath. At one point, my grandmother even unrolled an entire roll of toilet paper to leave Smiley on the very last sheet. There was no end to the places Smiley would pop up. Little notes with Smiley scribbled hurriedly were found on dashboards and car seats or taped to steering wheels. The notes were stuffed inside shoes and left under pillows. Smiley was written in the dust upon the mantle and traced in the ashes of the fireplace. This mysterious word was as much a part of my grandparents' house as the furniture. It took me a long time before I was able to fully appreciate my grandparents' game. Skepticism had kept me from believing in true love, one that is pure and enduring. However, I never doubted my grandparents' relationship. They had love down pat. It was more than their flirtatious little games. It was a way of life. Their relationship was based on a devotion and passionate affection, which not everyone is lucky enough to experience. Grandma and Grandpa held hands every chance they could. They stole kisses as they bumped into each other in their tiny kitchen. They finished each other's sentences and shared the daily crossword puzzle and word jumble. My grandma whispered to me about how cute grandpa was, how handsome an old man he had grown to be. She claimed that she really knew how to pick him. Before every meal, they bowed their heads and gave thanks, marveling at their blessings, a wonderful family, good fortune, and each other. But there was a dark cloud in my grandparents' life. My grandmother had breast cancer. 
the disease had first appeared 10 years earlier, as always. Grandpa was with her every step of the way. He comforted her in their yellow room, painted that color so she could always be surrounded by sunshine, even when she was too sick to go outside. Now the cancer was once again attacking her body with the help of a cane and my grandfather's steady hand. They still went to church every Sunday morning, but my grandmother grew steadily weaker until finally she could not leave the house anymore. For a while, Grandpa would go to church alone, praying to God to watch over his wife. Then one day, what we all dreaded finally happened. Grandma was gone. Smiley, it was scrawled in yellow on the pink ribbons of my grandmother's funeral bouquet. As the crowd thinned and the last mourners turned to leave, my aunts, uncles, cousins, and other family members came forward and gathered around Grandma one last time. Grandpa stepped up to my grandmother's casket, and after a shaky breath, he began to sing to her. Through his tears and grief, the song came a deeply and throated lullaby, shaking with my own sorrow, I will never forget that moment. For I knew then that although I could begin to fathom the deep, the depth of their love, they had been privileged to witness its unmatched beauty. S-H-M-I-L-Y. See how much I love you. That's where we should be. We should be cultivating a life in our marriages when it comes to an end that there is no love like it. And we are a witness to those who are out there and we bless God because of our relationships. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimonies of those who have gone before us in marriages and relationships we ask that you would help us to cast aside the flesh the way of the world its thinking and help us to live for you for we know as we train ourselves to be godly we will have benefit not only in this life but benefit in the future in the kingdom to come We thank you for your care and your loving kindness towards us. And we thank you for the marriages. And Father, may you bless them in here. May you heal and restore anything that is broken in any marriage that is in this church. And Father, may you just strengthen and continue to reinforce those who are doing well and are a good witness for you. In Jesus' name, and the church said,